0: The following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the land who is was slain may receive the full reward sufferings. For more information about us, please visit GCCLasCruces.com. Well friends, if you'll grab your Bibles this morning and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning, and we're ever closing in on the close of this series in second timothy friends i invite you to hear the words of our living god from paul's second letter to timothy chapter 4 starting in verse 1 and reading through verse 8 i charge you in the presence of god and of christ jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom preach the word be ready in season and out of season reprove rebuke and exhort With complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we enter into chapter 4 this morning. Paul has been sitting in a Roman prison, and his death is ever-present. It's weighing on him at this point. We know that it's there. Throughout this letter, we've seen, as he reminds this fellow brother, this son, his beloved son in Christ, of the important things that are on his mind, Paul is not focused on his own comforts. We don't hear him talk about the variety of challenges that he is currently in. He doesn't mention whether he has had food or water. He doesn't mention whether or not he's been beaten or abused. No, he's focused in. This very end, he's not worried about his comforts. He's focused in on the ministry. He's focused in on Christ. He's focused in on the continuation of this gospel that has claimed the entirety of his life that he has put everything into now. He's focused on equipping Timothy and subsequently preachers and believers to see the desperate need to stand firm in the faith. As he looks on his coming death, he realizes the need to be strong, the need to be firm, the need to be well-grounded in truth. He desires that the believer perseveres in the faith, knowing full well what that will mean. It will entail suffering. It will entail hardship. It will entail many challenges. But that does not stop him. He says, stand firm. So as we look at our text today, we see Paul begin to sum up these realities of what he's already previously written. He will call on Timothy to preach the word. He reminds him of the end times when when people will be lovers of self, as we looked at in chapter 3. He calls upon him to hold fast to the truth and to and gives him this set of imperatives to be sober minded, to endure suffering, to do the work of an evangelist and to fulfill his ministry. And finally, as Paul closes out our text for today, he looks forward. He spent time focusing on Timothy upon the past as it shapes Paul's teaching to him. And now he looks forward. this glorious hope that he has in Christ Jesus, knowing that he will soon see the Lord himself and he will be joined with him forever in eternal glory and righteousness. So as we look at our text, I've broken it down into four points for us to help navigate through. In verses 1 and 2, the charge for preaching the word. In verses 3 and 4, the cause for preaching the word. And verse 5, the condition for preaching the word. And finally in verses six and eight, six through eight, the confidence for preaching the word. So let us start off in verse one and two with the charge for preaching the word. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience in teaching. Chapter 4 starts with the command, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. We've seen this previously, right? This solemn order. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 21, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules. Without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Second Timothy chapter two and verse fourteen, remind them of these things, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words. Similarly, this charge is given in the presence of God, and with it comes a sense of mandatory obligation, a weight behind the charge. As we talked about previously, Paul is not saying He doesn't have some summoning power where he says, okay, God, okay, Christ, I want you to be here to watch this. No, God and Christ are present at all times. Rather, it's the weight of the charge at hand. It's given to Timothy here, and he says, remember that you are accountable to the Son. You were to stand before him one day. And so I'm giving this charge with the authority that comes from his apostolic ministry in Christ. And notice he points not to Christ's salvific nature, which is true of him, but rather he points to Christ, who is the judge of living and dead. Remember that Christ has been given judgment over all people. John chapter 5, verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Being in service to Christ includes being under his judgment and being subject to it. All of mankind, that includes all of us here, will come under the judgment. This is for both believer and unbeliever. The reality is, though, is there's a difference, right? The unbeliever will come under the condemnation and will be put out into everlasting contempt. However, the believer will be under the commendation and will enjoy eternal life in the presence of God. So as Paul gives this command, he calls Timothy to remember first that God and Christ are indeed present, but also to remind him that Christ is a Savior and a judge who will return and in that time will judge both the living and the dead. All of mankind will come under that judgment and he will judge one of those two ways, condemnation or commendation. However, for Timothy and for the minister of God's word, there's a reality of a stricter judgment that comes for James, from James chapter 3. We see that not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with, a stricter, with greater strictness. But let us not think, though, that this was a discouragement. Just because he was going to be judged with greater strictness doesn't mean that he should not try or just give up or don't bother. No, it was an encouragement for Timothy. Remember that one day you will stand before the living Christ and you will be judged for your work. Not as a means of your salvation, but as a response to the Christ who has already saved you. Paul desired to give him extra juice for his ministry. It's like he gave him some vitamins and said, now go out and go work. May we find encouragement there too, to know that Christ judges our work that he will see it and he'll lay it before us and He will be in front of him. And even though we'll receive the crown of righteousness as saved believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will call everything forward. May we desire that we honored him in everything that we've done. May we desire that everything that we put before him is for his glory and for the good of his people and his church. And by his appearing in his kingdom, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. The added reality that Christ will return, right? The scriptures, as we just read, describe his face being in the brilliance of the rising sun, so bright, shining. And this is what Timothy had to look forward to, that Christ will return, and with it would come his kingdom forevermore. Remember, we saw in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. So Timothy can look forward to the reality that all of the efforts that he puts forward, all of the things that he does in response to this Christ who has saved him, who has called him out of darkness and into his light, would result in him reigning with the risen Christ forevermore. Paul's addition of these two things, or these these points of who Christ is, is to point to, as, a, as a point of him looking upon his own death, right? He knows that Christ will judge him. And he longs for that appearing of Christ in the kingdom. And he says, brother, as we know that they are present with us, as we know that Christ will be the judge, as we know that Christ will come again and his kingdom will come with it. And he gives him then the charge says, knowing all of those things, he says, preach the word. We see this precursor in chapter 2 and verse 9. He says, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. He's told them already that God's word is to go forth. It's not bound. There's nothing holding it back. And so he says, so preach it. Preach the word. The Greek word here means or to proclaim openly. As you know, in New Testament times, the herald would come into the streets of the cities and make announcements of special events or declarations or changes of law in the government. He would come in and he would say, here, listen, the emperor is coming to you. Here, listen, there's a new emperor that has been put in place. Here, listen. The law now states, and he says, go forth and preach, be a herald. But not of the king of the earth, not of the emperor here, but of the king who is in heaven and his word. He says, preach his word. He's pointing to the entirety of the scriptures. As we saw in chapter 3 and verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God. And so Paul says, Timothy, be a herald of these entireties. These whole scriptures, open them up to the people and bring them the truth of God's word. Don't preach yourself, don't preach the world, but preach the word. Focus there. This is what every biblical preacher is to do, is to focus in on the word. This is what we are called to, is the word. This is what we live by, the word. If we're not doing that, then we aren't meant to be here. Friends, if you listen to any other sermons out there and they are not preaching the word, don't listen to them. The call is clear, and this applies to every biblical preacher throughout history from Paul all the way down. Preach the word. And he says, Be ready in season and out of season. Be ready. It's prepared, right? Saying, Be prepared. The scriptures use this word in other ways to talk about something coming upon suddenly. We see it in reference to angels appearing suddenly. And it's a sense of being ready at any time because at any moment, you might be called to be ready. You need to be ready to run or be ready to listen or be ready to speak. It's a sense of suddenness, this active watch. It's like always be prepared, like the scout's motto, right? Always prepared. That's the goal. The minister of God's word is to be ready, actively, willing to serve Christ at any time and in any place and in any way. However, this isn't just applicable to the minister of Christ. This isn't just applicable to the preacher. Rather, 1 Peter chapter 3 expands this. He says, but in your heart, honor Christ as the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Paul calls on Timothy to be ready in season and out of season, but this applies to all of us. We are called to be ready in season and out of season, whether it's convenient or whether it's not convenient, whether it's suitable or not suitable, whether it's in the pulpit or out of the pulpit, all of the time. You're called upon to be ready. And how is he to do this? How is he to be ready? What does he need for equipment to be ready? in season and out of season. God's word. He said, preach God's word. To be able to preach it, you need to know it. And so then he says, by studying it, by knowing it, you can be ready in season and out of season. Study God's word. I was just listening to someone talking, actually Steve Lawson talking about uh, Martin Luther. And on his way from Wittenberg to Worms, where he was going for his supposed debate, which really was just... uh, heresy trial in the making. On his way, he preached in cities throughout. Every stop along the way, people were calling him and saying, here, the pulpit's open, come and preach. We desire to hear you. Talk about being ready in season and out of season. And that's what we are called to do as Christians, to be ready at all times, to give an account, to be able to speak to the truths of God's word. Notice though that Paul's call to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, he gives another reason. And he says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Reproving and rebuking are so closely tied. Reprove, in the Greek word, sometimes translated as convict or refute, brings a sense of pointing out error. This fly's is killing me today. <laughs> it's pointing out error or falsehoods. Reprove means to point out errors or falsehoods, to bring someone under the conviction of guilt. It's to say, you are erring, you are wrong. But then to rebuke is to charge or admonish them. It brings them to a sense of repentance. So it's saying you are wrong, not just saying you are wrong, but saying there's a reason that you need to be right. Because you are in a place of guilt. You are in a place that you need to be repentant. And then he goes to exhort, this carries the sense of encouraging or summoning or entreating. Having rep- reproved and rebuked, then there is this call to exhort, to walk alongside the individual, to point them in the way of salvation. First, or First Thessalonians chapter two and verse eleven and twelve, we see: for you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you to encouraged you and charged you to walk in the manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So we see a sense where the preacher and the elder is called to care for the flock. But then it extends. 1 Thessalonians chapter fifteen and ver- or sorry chapter 5 and verse 14. And we, incur- we urge you, brother, admonish or exhort the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. We are all called to be ready, in season and out of season, to exhort, to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort. And he says, with complete patience and teaching. Patience, long-suffering, right? Steadfastness, endurance, and teaching, the instruction, the doctrine. And he says, we can't simply rebuke and reprove and exhort. We must do so with patience and teaching. We must desire that all come to a knowledge of Christ. What a difficult task we have at hand. So many times I know for myself, and I'm sure for you, you call people to repentance and faith. You see something and you say, man, you're going against the living God, the God who is filled with all truth. And then we get frustrated, right? Because we see it so clearly. It's like, I see your error. I see your need for repentance. I see, your, I see the way out of where you are at. And we get frustrated because they seem to be strained this way or that way, going off into different teachings, to different sins. And so we're really good at reproving and rebuking. We might even be good at exhorting. But man, we are really bad when it comes with patience and teaching. We can just desire to throw up our hands and say, you're a problem. You want to be like that? Then that's your problem. But let us not do that. Rather, let us grow in patience. Let us grow in teaching. Let us grow that we have complete patience in teaching because that is what we have been called to do. And how do you do that? Through Christ. I don't have patience on my own. And I know you don't either. You don't have the ability to reprove, to rebuke, and to exhort well on your own. I don't either. We do this in Christ. We do this through the study of His Word. We do this through seeing the example laid forth in the Scriptures as Paul, as James, as Peter do all of these things, as the Gospels do all of these things, as Christ Himself did these things. He called on people to repent of their sins to turn in faith towards him and he did it with complete patience and teaching let us do these things as well so friends we've seen our first point this morning the charge for preaching the word paul makes it very clear to timothy that he is to preach this word right while this has a special emphasis on preachers and teachers we are called to share the truth of god's word in our own circles in our own contexts Remember, we are before God and the Son who will judge the living and the dead, and we can be motivated to serve Him in every context that we're in, in every different situation we are in, because we know that His joyful appearance will come, and His kingdom will return, and we will stand before the great judge and the great king. So let us now turn our attention to verses 3 and 4 as we see the cause for preaching the word. Here again, verses 3 and verses 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. And they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth, and wander off into mist. For this time is coming. Once again, Paul points Timothy back to these last days, right? Between Christ's first appearance and his second as he did in chapter 3. Remember, in the beginning of chapter 3, he says, but understand this, that in the last days, and here he says, for the time is coming, he's saying that there's going to be this point in these last days where people would not endure sound teaching. Who are these people that Paul is speaking of? Is he talking about unbelievers or is he talking about professing Christians? Well, based on our text, we can Say that he probably has professing Christians in mind. Indeed, there's the obvious rebellion of the unbeliever, right? He's opposed to God. He's opposed to the very truth of God. And so it's in their very nature to oppose him, to oppose his truth, that they won't want to hear sound teaching, sound doctrine. However, he is saying that there will come a time when professing believers, people who say that they know Christ... Those that are not truly saved but say that they know Christ will reveal their true colors. And how will they do that? They will not endure sound teaching. They won't be counted amongst the elect, but rather they will be these professing believers. <coughs> they won't endure, they won't hold up to. Especially so, that the word endure in the Greek has a sense of holding up to, especially in the sense of challenging times or in difficulty. It's pointing to like being able to tolerate the difficult times. And he says sound, which is like healthy. These people will not be able to stand up in difficult times to healthy teaching. They may even sit under solid biblical teaching, but because they are not truly saved, they have no desire for it nor are away because it comes under hard times. We're seeing it today, right? We see biblical teachers Throughout the land, who are being arrested, who are being persecuted, who are being mocked and ridiculed. We see constantly people online talking and shaming somebody for speaking biblical truths. If they don't stand with all of the progressive movement, or if they don't stand with all the LGBT movement, or if they don't stand with abortion, or whatever the cause is, they stand against those things, then they're ridiculed and they're mocked and they're called to that they're evil and mean and they're not of God. No, they're standing under biblical teaching. These are biblical truths that these men are speaking. So, as hard times come, these persec- persecutions come, these people in these last days and these end times will not endure to stay under it because they'll want comfort, they'll want to run away. They don't want to be persecuted. They don't want to know the truth. They'd rather have their comforts met. We see it happening so frequently today. Western culture becomes more and more hostile to Christians, right? We see God's word being bent and broken to meet every desire of the people. They don't want to have any hardships. They don't want to have any struggles. They don't want to hear the truth. They just want to be comforted. And notice what Paul says. He says, by having itching ears, instead of sound teaching, instead of the biblical gospel, instead of holding up God's word as the authority and the truth of everything, they will have itching ears. Translated in some as having their ears be tickled. Points to this desire to be comforted, not to be convicted. They want their ears to be tickled or to be itched as to relieve a scratch, right? They they had this itching and they just needed to be relieved. And how do they do that? False teaching. False doctrines. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. These false believers will gather together false teachers that meet their needs. As we saw in chapter 3 just a couple weeks back, in these last days, people will become lovers of themselves. And their whole desire will be Hedonism to please their own selves, they will only be concerned with their own comforts, with their own needs, with meeting everything that they want and desire. Doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to just stop calling themselves Christians. That's the sad part. If that's what you want to stop calling yourself a Christian, walk away. No, they're going to continue to call themselves Christians and they taint and distort God's word to meet their desires rather than sit under the biblical truth. They'd rather have the appearance of godliness. And deny its power. Than to be truly living in godliness. And experiencing the true power of the gospel. That can transform their lives. That can call them out of their sin. And unto righteousness. They will not stand with God's word. But they will pick it out like a buffet. They will say I don't really want that. Because that looks too hard. But I will take the cake over there. Because that looks real nice and sweet and easy. They will find those that preach. What allows them to continue living and avoiding living in their sins and avoid being offensive. This is the problem with so many of the false teachers today. A fear of conviction, a fear of truth. They don't want to go up there and say, you have sinned, turn. They don't want to say, you are under the wrath of God if you have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot continue to live this way and call yourself a Christian. You must go one way or the other. You're either on the narrow path or on the wide path. You're either going through the narrow door or not. You have one way or the other, and that's it. It's the blight of progressive churches. This is the blight of what's hurting and trying to attack the true church today. And notice what happens they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The results, right? Notice this isn't something that they're that anyone else is doing to them. It's coming from within. They're doing it to themselves. They are turning away from the truth. The truth is there. The truth is here in God's word. They have no excuse but they turn away from it. And this is the result, that they wander off into myths. Myths are the same words we saw back in 1 Timothy chapter 4. It's been over a year now, so you may not remember this, but 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7 have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Old wise tales, fables, getting caught up in these false teachings, these just. Dist- Silly things, right? These things that don't actually save. We see them all the time coming out of televangelists today. If you just do this, then God can save you. If you just give enough money, then you'll get more back. They get caught up in these false teaching, these myths and these fables. Come as you are and stay as you are. You just have to be at church every Sunday and everything will be fine. Go to confession. Share your sins with the priest, and you can be forgiven. Pay your fee, and your indulgences will be met. Purgatory is an option, and you can get there too. These are all false teachings. These are all myths that don't exist anywhere because they're not biblical. This is what people in these last days will desire they won't endure sound teaching, they'll have itching ears. They'll gather together for themselves those that suit their needs, suit their passions, and they'll flee from the truth and into myth. Now friends, we've seen the charge for preaching the word. Once again, Paul is clear, right? Preach the word. Now we've seen the cause for preaching the word. There's a fact that in the last days there will be people who will not endure truth, and therefore all the more true believers must hold firmly on to it. We must grasp that truth and hold to it, point others to the truth, point them away from false teaching teaching and false doctrine. As more and more people flee to find those that will scratch their ears, that will give them license to do their own sins, feed into their self-love for their own conceit, we must stand firm, calling them to hear God's word. We must reprove and rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Let us turn now our attention to our third point for this morning, the condition for preaching the word. And here again, verse 5. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I just love it as Paul continues to do these contrasting statements. He says, unlike these False teachers, unlike those that are caught up in their own self-love, unlike those that are caught up searching after endless myths and silly lies, unlike those who are unable to endure sound teaching, he says, as for you, don't be like those people. Don't be like those false teachers and those false churches and those false doctrines. He says, always be sober-minded. What does that mean? What does sober-minded mean? Being temperate having self-restraint and self-control, being of sound mind and level-headed. Paul calls on Timothy to be in this state of constant sobriety, of thought and of action. As a faithful preacher of God's word, he is to be of sound mind and not wavering or wandering off into myths. He is to be the one that desires to please God rather than to please man. Remember Galatians chapter 1, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So the implication there is that to be a servant of Christ means that you please God. You don't please man. He needs to keep his mind straight to remember what he is to proclaim. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. He is to keep a straight mind, to keep focused. As we talked about in the beginning, right? Paul, in his last days, is focused in. He's dialed in. And what is he focused on? He's focused on Christ, on continuing this ministry, on making sure that the word of truth continues to abound. And he says, you focus in. You be sober-minded. You keep to your task. It's exactly what we talked about earlier when he said no soldier gets entangled with civilian pursuits. Remember, the athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The farmer, the hard-working farmer, he says, ought to have the first share of his crops. This is all about being focused, having your mind clear, being on the right path and staying to it. He says, be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Translates quite literally, to suffering from evil. It's the same word that we saw in chapter 2 and verse 9, for which I am suffering, bound as a criminal, enduring evil, even though he had done nothing wrong, right? And he says, but the word of God is not bound. MacArthur in his commentary says about this specifically, endure suffering, and he says, there is no such thing as a faithful ministry that, that is not costly. There is no such thing as a faithful ministry that is not costly. A painless ministry is a shallow and fruitless one. Friends, if you were to be faithful believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, you must endure suffering. He says, do the work of an evangelist. What is this work of an evangelist? It's the sharing of the good news. It's the sharing of the gospel. Being a herald of the gospel. This is the call upon every believer. If you're a believer here this morning, you are called to be an evangelist. Well, there are some that have been called specifically to the ministry of evangelism, street preachers, and going out into, we see like our brother Ryan Denton, going out into public arenas to preach and evangelize. We know that all colors. All, all believers are called to be evangelists in this great commission. So do the work of an evangelist. It's not that Paul was calling Timothy to a special ministry outside of the ministry he was already in. He, Paul, Paul realized Timothy had a ministry in Ephesus. He had a people. He was an elder and a pastor and a preacher. He was called to shepherd this flock, to care for this people. But he said, be an evangelist. Do this work. Timothy was to preach truth. He was to call people to the saving knowledge of the gospel. And he closes out, he says, fulfill your ministry. Bring to completion. Give full effort towards the preaching and the teaching that you have been called to do. Paul desired that Timothy could join him in saying Well, we'll see in these final verses. That he has finished the race. That he has kept the faith knowing that he could one day then stand with him before the risen Christ, worshiping him forever. And so with that, we turn our attention to see those final verses. As we look at our final point, the confidence for preaching the word, we see that Paul has great confidence as he approaches his death because he knows what will come. Friends, here again, the Final verses here, verses 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid out for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. I'm going to turn back to Numbers 15 real quick. Hark in some Old Testament references, being poured out as a drink offering. We see Paul speak of this earlier in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. But he pulls this from Numbers 15, talking about these different offerings and the final one, in verse 10, he says, And you shall offer for the drink offering half of a hin of wine as a food offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. He's, this is at the very end of all of these different offerings that are supposed to be there. And so he comes to this end and he says, I am to be a drink offering. He's supposed to be poured out. It's possible that Paul was speaking to his own form of execution, He knew that he would not be crucified. For Roman citizens could not be crucified. But he knew it would probably be likely that he would be beheaded. That his blood would literally be poured out upon the altar. That it would really be this drink offering being poured out before the Lord. This pleasing aroma to God as a martyr for him. And he says, and the time of my departure has come. He uses the same word here that specifies kind of an era or a period. It's not a specific time, but there's this era. He knows that he's in the midst of his departure now. He's looking ahead and he says, this this is weight is over me. I know that the end is near. There's going to be a final point, but right now this time of my departure has come. I'm at the closing doors. I'm about to walk through it. Notice the reality of the word departure has several meanings and William Barclay lays out four of those in light of Paul's coming death. And I just want to share these because I thought they were so beautiful. First, it is the word for unyoking an animal from the shafts of the cart or the plow. Death to Paul was rest from his toil. He would be glad to lay the burden down. Secondly, it is a word for loosening bonds or fetters. Death for Paul was a liberation and a release He was to exchange the confines of a Roman prison for the glorious liberty of the courts of heaven. Third, it is the word for loosening the ropes of a tent. For Paul, it was time to strike camp again. Many a journey he had made across the roads of Asia Minor and Europe. Now he was setting out on his last and his greatest journey. He was taking the road that led to God. And fourth, it was the word for loosening or the mooring of ropes for a ship. Many a time Paul had sailed the Mediterranean and had felt the ship leave the harbor for the deep waters. Now he is to launch out into the greatest deep of all. He is to set sail to uh, setting sail to cross the waters of death and arrive at the heaven of eternity. So thankfully, Paul, as he looks upon his departure, his coming death he could do so with hope in the savior who would welcome him into his kingdom. Notice how he finishes out here. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul now points towards this end truth. His end is approaching. He said it. He said, my departure has come. And he says, I have fought the good fight. I'm going to read this to you real quick. It's from Brian Chapel, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Brian Chapel. he's big in the preaching ministry and teaching, and he wrote this talking about Paul and just kind of an Im- Im- imagination that he had of Paul sitting in a Roman, Roman prison looking on his departure and he says, I have fought the good fight. Here are these words from Brian Chapel. I'm not usually one to read a lot of illustrations or a lot of quotes, but this one I just thought was so beautiful. I once imaginatively pictured the Apostle Paul at the end of his career, dressed in armor, as he described in Ephesians six. Here is how I saw him. He has worn his war belt so, that, so long that it is sweated through and through the salt-stained and through and salt-stained and comfortable like an old horse's bridle. and it holds everything perfectly in place. The belt of truth, God's truth, has girded him tight for years so that it has permeated his life and reigns within. He is armed with the clear eyes of a clean conscience. He can face anything. His torso is sheathed with a battle-tarnished breastplate. It is crisscrossed with great lateral grooves from slicing sword blows indented from enemy artillery. The breastplate of righteousness has preserved his vitals intact. His holy life has rendered his heart impervious to the spiritual assaults of Satan. His gnarled legs are comfortable in his studded war boots. He has stood his ground on several continents. The boots are the gospel of peace, the peace with God that comes through faith in him and the resultant peace of God, the sense of well being and wholesome, or wholeness, shalom. He stands in peace, and being rooted in peace, he cannot be moved. Paul's great shield terrifies the eyes, for the broken shafts and the many charred holes reveal him to be a victor of many fierce battles. The shield of faith, held up as he has repeatedly believed God's word, has caught and extinguished every fiery dart of doubt and sensuality and materialism. None have touched him. On his old gray head, he wears a helmet that has seen better days. Great dense mar at symmetry, reminders of the furtive blows dealt him by the enemy. Because the helmet of salvation, the confidence of knowing that he is saved and will be saved, has allowed him to stand tall against the most vicious assaults, his imperial confidence gives him a regal bearing. And then there is the sword. He was equal to a hundred when his sword flashed the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the ultimate offensive weapon, cut through everything, armor, flesh, glistening bone, marrow, and even the soul. What an awesome figure the Apostle was. He had stood before Felix and Agrippa, the legates and the officials of Rome, and he had not given an inch. He was the consummate warrior. He fought the good fight. The Greek word for fought is aganizomai, where we get agony. Both words point to the sense of an athletic contest, a sense of striving and putting in every struggle and every effort to get to the end goal. We see it used in 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians and in Luke. 1 Timothy says, fight the good fight of faith. First Corinthians, he says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Exercises being striving, agonizing over. Luke 13, strive or agonize to enter through the narrow door. So what we gain is that Paul is saying he has strived towards the goal. He's put in every effort, both spiritually and physically, to get to this point. And notice what he says, he's fought the good fight. He hasn't fought a frivolous one, he hasn't fought a fight that is unworthy of his time, he's fought the good fight. He's put to death his own flesh, sin and Satan. And he's fought for Christ and for truth and for righteousness. He has fought for what is in line with Christ Jesus, and has followed after Christ's interests and instead his instead of his own desires. Friends, fight the good fight. Strive to battle against your own flesh, your own sin. Pursue righteousness. Pursue Christ. Always facing the new and ever-changing battles. That one day, you will stand at the end and you can look back and say, I have fought the good fight. And he says, I have finished the race. He has come to the end. Race, meaning... A metaphor for this course of life. We see it used in two other places in the New Testament, speaking of John the Baptist in Acts 13. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What am I what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Paul again uses this speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts. Chapter 20, but I do not account my life of any value nor precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of grace of God. And he finishes, he says, I have kept the faith, the cores of the Christian belief. Paul has charged Timothy throughout, says, guard this deposit entrusted to you. As I have. And Paul now can look back and he can say, boy, have I. I have fought the fight. I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. And henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. In the future, as he looks out on his coming death, he can say there is a crown laid up for me. He knows that he's done it all. He's put every effort in. All he has now is to preach the gospel as he goes towards his death. All he has is to write these letters. And he says, as I look back and I know that I've done everything I can do, all I know that is left is that there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. He is at the end of his race and he is awaiting the precious prize it's laid up it's safely guarded it's been held for him awaiting his ter- return there we see this same word used in matthew but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven first timothy chapter 6 he says thus storing up treasures for yourselves as a good foundation for the future He's talking about this crown of righteousness. Remember that the believer will suffer. And we see that with suffering, though, comes great reward. Matthew chapter 5, in the Beatitudes, he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew chapter 16, for the Son of Man is going to come with the angels in the glory of the Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And what is Paul looking forward to? He says a crown, a mark of royalty, an exalted rank, a wreath or a garland, right, that is given to a victor. The metaphor being this eternal blessedness which will be given as a prize to the genuine servant of God and Christ. The reward of righteousness being eternally justified and accepted to God. We see this crown in other places in Scripture using slightly different words. James talks about it. he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. 1 Peter chapter 5, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And notice, and I'm sorry, this, this scripture, I, I was crying last night reading through this again. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. The crown of righteousness will be given to Paul By the very one who is righteous. The Lord, the good and perfect and righteous judge. Christ will stand as judge. Looking upon Paul. Who had nothing to stand on his own. Who has only done any good works because of the work that has been done in him. Who literally, for every reason, deserves to be sent out away from Christ. As we all do having nothing to stand on. And Christ, the righteous judge, will bestow upon him a crown of righteousness. It is only because Christ has declared him to be righteous that he can then be given a righteous crown. The blessings do not end. Every time you read the scriptures, you think of the saving work of Christ and you think to yourself, what more can I ask for? What I deserve is to be in your contempt. What I deserve is to be sent out into utter darkness. What I deserve is to be sent away, as far away from you as feasibly possible. But you've saved me. You've called me out of darkness, and you call me into your marvelous light. But he doesn't stop there. He crowns you in righteousness. He allows you to rule with him forever. He gives you authority where you don't deserve it. And this is the award that he will receive on that day, he says. The day when he stands before the Lord Jesus, having been made righteous in him. And we have that to look forward to as well. Notice what he says, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The crown of righteousness is not just for Paul. It's not just for Timothy, but for all of us. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can look forward to this crown yourself. All who have loved his appearing points directly to the believer and says those that have put their faith in Christ and have desired for his return will one day stand before him and receive their own crown of righteousness. So the text begs the question, do you love his appearing? If so, then look forward to your crown. It is stored up in heaven It's being guarded and well kept to be given to you on that day. And so friends, as we come to a close for today, just like to refresh our minds a little here. We have seen the charge for preaching the word. As Paul calls on Timothy to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, to rebuke, and to exhort with complete patience and teaching. We have seen the cause of preaching the word as we see the reality that false teaching, and we know to be the fact, is gaining more and more attraction. People will be lovers of self, and therefore will store up for themselves those that tickle their ears. Comfort them in their sin, rather than calling them to repentance and faith. We have seen the condition for preaching the word. As Paul calls upon Timothy to be sober-minded to endure suffering, to do the work of an evangelist, and to fulfill his ministry. This call is applicable to all believers, though. May we all be sober-minded. May we all be level-headed. May we endure suffering as a good soldier for Christ. May we do what we have been called to do, and share the gospel of Christ, and in turn fulfill our ministry, in whatever context the Lord has placed us And finally, we have seen the confidence for preaching the word. As Paul draws our minds to the coming prize that he would receive and that all true believers would receive. And so as we close, I would like to read these words for you again from verses 7 and 8. An encouragement that we might join in Paul one day saying these same things. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me... A crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous Judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. What a beautiful reality we have to look forward to, if we are indeed in Christ and have loved His appearing. May we strive to fight the good fight. May we finish our race. May we keep the faith, knowing that this righteous crown has been stored up, and it will be bestowed upon our heads by the righteous judge, the one who has made us righteous to stand before him, the Lord Jesus. And let us pray.